from Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to Hollywood Unscripted. I'm your host, Scott Talal of the Malibu Film Society. Joining me today in the studio is our producer, Jenny Curtis. Hi, Jenny. Hi. And this is our final episode of the season. Our guest today is Sally Potter, who's written and directed The Roads Not Taken, starring Javier Bardem and Al Fanning, along with Salma Hayek and Laura Linney. Welcome. Thank you very much indeed. Over the past several years, we've had a steadily increasing number of films that have been dealing with dementia. And I know you've had some personal experience with it, but what was the new territory? What was the difference that you wanted to get across with your story? Well, I wanted to explore really the mystery of the mind, that this illness is not necessarily only a really difficult and tough tragedy, although there's often great difficulty involved, but the fact that we don't really know what goes on in the mind when somebody seems to disappear. I asked myself the question, well, maybe they're going somewhere really interesting. And that gave, if you like, a doorway into thinking differently about the mind, about lives not lived, roads not taken, that's the title, um, that somebody might be slipping in and out of different kind of awarenesses, even of parallel lives, the lives they could have lived um, that are existing at the very least somewhere within their mind. So it was using it not so dementia is not like the sum total of the story. It's not just about somebody with dementia, but rather somebody in a state of mind and in a relationship with, in this case, a daughter taking care of him. Mm -hmm. And we're exploring that state of mind also through her eyes too. Now, I know that you did dedicate this to your late brother, Nick, and that he suffered from frontal lobe dementia. Yes, from a young onset dementia. He was very Mm -hmm. young when he got it and the symptoms took him over quite quickly. He passed on within two years, yes. As I understand it, you were very involved in his care. Yes, I was. So how did that inform the story that you wanted to tell? Well, for me, it was accompanying him, if you like, as his kind of witness and caregiver. There were other people caring for him too, but but being responsible for his care and going with him opened my eyes to many, many things. First of all, how badly somebody in that condition is often treated as if they're becoming less than human, so on. And I found that I became incredibly protective of him. And also that people say it gets more and more hard to communicate with somebody in this state. Well, I found it was actually, if I went into, let's say, his speech patterns and treated them like poetry and rapped with him in the state, in these fractured language that other people couldn't understand, but we could understand each other perfectly well. Mm. Also that we laughed a lot through the, you know, sometimes humiliating experience he was having. I tried to turn them into a joke, into a kind of human comedy rather than human tragedy. So I learned a great deal. Of course, I was deeply, deeply saddened by his loss and was grieving and so on. But I wanted to find a way of telling a story that might, by transposing it and transforming it into something else, might first of all be useful for other people who've been through a similar experience as carers or whatever, but also might ask different questions about the mind, the mysteries of the mind. And certainly from all the neurologists I talked to, all the specialists through all that period, where I gradually realized there is still a great deal to learn about this and many other mental states and a great deal more respect owed to the people who are living with this illness. But I didn't want to do a portrait of him. So the character portrayed in this film by Javier couldn't be more different, actually. 
is very different. The story is held by a father-daughter relationship rather than sibling. So it went through many processes of transformation, but that's where it sprung from. The father-daughter relationship is obviously the core of this film. And the character portrayed by Elle, the daughter, is so incredibly sympathetic to what her father is going through to the point of sacrificing everything else about her life, it seems. Well, it's left open at the end exactly what she is prepared to sacrifice and what she isn't. But what we see is that she's split. We see the consequences that so many women face in their lives, whether that's mothers caring for their own children. How can they also have a life, a guilt-free life, following their own trajectory? And she, as a daughter, is trying to do the right and loving thing for her father, the guy she loves. You know, She loves her father, and her heart is kind of aching for him and for his suffering, but she also loves her own work, and she wants wants to do that. So at the very end, we see a signal that she's trying to do both. She's trying to do both and wants to do both and intends to do both. Did you start creating this story while you were caring for your brother? No. Afterwards, while I was caring for him, I was actually making another film. So I know exactly what it's like when you're working and answering the phone and rushing over late at night or early in the morning to deal with some crisis or something. I know what that split is like at first hand. But no, when I was in the middle of it, it was kind of overwhelming. So it was only later when I started started to do what all writers do, which is transform some of the biggest experiences they've had in their life and start to work with it and see what you can do with it to put it back out into the world in a way that will make sense for others. But at the time, no, I couldn't. Now, separate from the making of the movie, there is the business side Was this a hard sell to either investors or to the actors that you approached? It was a very hard sell to investors, not such a hard sell to the actors because they could see in it the potential to explore an incredible range of profound human experience, really. Even in the smaller parts like Salma Hayek, you know, it's small, but every good actor knows there's no such thing as a small part. And for her, it was really interesting to play a Mexican woman that she recognizes as a total human being and not as a stereotype and so on. So, no, the actors were very enthusiastic and eager and hardworking and intense. I think for investors, it was difficult to see how this might work because it's quite a complicated structure to run these kind of parallel lives interweaving through the mind of this man. But also because the subject of dementia or mental illness is kind of taboo. You know, there have been some films, yes, but it's still a difficult area that people don't really want to look at. And this was coming at it in such a different way. It's not really the main focus of the thing. It's not dementia. The main focus of this is love, the many faces of love. A daughter for her father, an ex-wife for somebody who she still loves but is no longer responsible for, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think it wasn't self-evident. But there were enough people who were financiers who were passionately committed to it from the very beginning as core financiers, and then others came in later. Talk to us a little bit more about the casting. Yes. What do you want to know? Was Javier your first choice, or were others considered for this role? If I did consider others, I've now conveniently forgotten them. (laughs) I always feel that once I've ended up with somebody, how could I 
even have thought of anybody else, you mm. know. And that's it's often like that. Sometimes it takes a bit of trial and error and kind of figuring it out. And initially, I was thinking of somebody English speaking, and it took a while for me. It was like a eureka moment when I thought, no, this will be much more interesting if it's a Latino person who's not only looking at life through the filter of this illness, but looking at it through the filter of another language. Mm. So in a way, the issue of translation between their mental state and how people understand them, all the communication difficulties, the feeling of a borderline, if you like, not a physical border between Mexico and America in the United States, but the border inside the mind between one state and another. One thing became a metaphor for another. And I've loved many of the performances that Javier done, in particular how he was in Inuritu's film, Beautiful, which I think is an extraordinary film, and Javier's great in it. So I approached him with the script and he was eager to take it on with some trepidation, but he was eager to take it on. Javier Bardem and Salma Hayek, they know each other in real life. Did that affect their casting or the way they interacted on set? Yes. Well, she's very, very close friends with Penelope, who Javier is married to. But they made a decision early on that while they were on set or while we were in rehearsal and working together, that they would create a kind of professional distance as if they didn't know each other outside. But I think there was joking and sense of humor and kind of the rough and tumble of the fact that they did do already know each other that probably helped actually the ease with which they worked together. And because Sama is Mexican and she's playing Mexican and he's playing Mexican, he was looking to her, for example, to make sure his accent was correct and that everything he did or said was authentic to her as a Mexican individual. That was very helpful for me too. So, yeah, they worked off each other very well. And in a very short space of time, you know, we shot all of their scenes together in three days, but we prepared for months beforehand. And they're both people who like to prepare. Now, of course, Elle Fanning, you had worked with on Ginger and Rosa eight years ago. Yes. And she is an outstanding performer, an outstanding professional young 21-year-old now, um, 13 when I first worked with her. And she brings uh, dedication and enthusiasm and lightness to to a role and is able to imagine herself into the shoes of others, experiences she's never had directly herself. She somehow manages to empathize with and imagine in an incredibly authentic way. And she's a joy to work with. She's, She's an extraordinary young performer. Did you have her in mind when you were creating the character? When I was writing the script, I was deliberately not allowing myself to imagine any particular actors in the role, but rather let the characters themselves come to life under my pen, so to speak, to find out who they were. Now, that's partly because if you get fixated on a particular actor while you're writing and it doesn't work out for one reason or another, scheduling or, you know, whatever, you can be disappointed. Whereas if you allow the character to come to life and then start to think, well, who could play this? And might it take this character in a different direction? That can be very enlivening. And then what I usually do once I've got somebody committed to the part in principle, I then work with them, find out how it fits and retailor it slightly to fit them more precisely or to fit their qualities or whatever. And so to the point where then I really can't imagine anybody else in the role. I would imagine that the process of putting fingers to keyboard in creating this script must have generated a lot of mixed emotions. 
Because of the experience with my brother, you mean? Yes. And also a very close friend who had multiple sclerosis, who I was very close to over a 20, 30-year period, actually, until she died. And she died the same year as my brother, actually, and I was with each of them through to the end. So, yes, of course, the feeling of loss, the feeling of grief, the feeling of the unfairness of illness and, you know, why them and all the things that anybody experiences who has people close to them that they lose for one reason or another or who unfairly suddenly seem to be struck by illness. But precisely because I know that it's universal, that experience, we all face it one moment or another. Disability activists call it, the rest of us are temporarily able-bodied until something happens, you know. And that's not a doomy thing. It's just a real life thing. It's a human thing. We're strong, but we're also fragile. Our bodies are fragile. And how do we we care for people around us who we love when they're sick. You know, it's a big, big problem. Social care, care for the older, care for parents, and so on and so forth. Nearly everybody's wrestling with it one way or another at some point in their life. So I was having those feelings, but I knew I was not alone in having those feelings. And so it was something to explore. Now, once one is actually writing, I was getting on with it and then shooting much, much later. By then, it's about crafting the best possible film. It's about structure, character, you know, narrative development, and color palette, design, clothes, you know, all the other obsessive preoccupations of a filmmaker. So by then, feelings are secondary. Feelings are irrelevant. They may have been the starting point, but in trying to craft it, properly, you have to have the detachment of the artist. Right. And then maybe much later in the process, like when I was editing it, like six months into the process, I suddenly found myself having a lot of feelings about one particular scene. And it almost took me by surprise because it was so changed from my original experience. It was so transposed into another setting, another country. You know, the characters had taken on very different shapes. But I was still able to see that this was, this was, yeah, I had feelings. In some ways, then, it's like helping you process all of those feelings. No, I process the feelings through the way one processes feelings, by talking about it with friends or other family or in therapy. For me, the filmmaking process is not a way for me to process my life. It's a way for me to do what I do as a dedicated filmmaker. You know, I love filmmaking, but I don't really use it to process my life, if I can put it that way. But I think to stay rooted in feeling in a general sense is essential. Otherwise, you're going to be a robot filmmaker, you know, doing things that you don't care about. So it's important to care about it, but it's not a therapeutic vehicle. It's something else altogether. Mm. And I think people get very confused about that. People often confuse, for example, novels with the writer of the novel. They assume everything in the novel, because it has deep feeling, must be a portrait of something that person's already done and felt. But it's not. We use our lives as material because life itself is the raw material of the work we do. If it's going to reach others, it must be. Hey listeners, sorry to interrupt your show. I just wanted to pop in and say that we have had an amazing time with you this season sharing the behind the scenes stories, unexpected trials, and unique perspectives of incredible creatives. While this is our season one finale, don't go far because we have got big plans in store for season two. And it's coming soon to a podcast platform near you. So make sure to subscribe. You don't want to miss it. All right, back to the show.
collaboration with Robbie Ryan. Talk to us about how you use cinematography to create those sharp divisions between past, present, and the different stories that were being told simultaneously. Well, the script is the starting point of everything, and I try and think of it as the Bible in a way for everybody that works on the film. They're going to find clues about how to work. And Robbie and I worked with the script and looked at it and thought about it and thought about how we want to use the camera eye, what it's seeing and how it's seeing, where that's coming from. And we decided to keep close to Javier's character and close to Elle's character and see or experience the scenes that we were in, so to speak, through their eyes or through their bodies. So, for example, if he's feeling like a very small person in a big landscape, then the camera can be far away, seeing him as a small figure in a big landscape. But if he's in the street, overwhelmed by the sound of traffic, we'll be close to him and close to his face and the anxiety in his face as trains go by and cars go by and, and noise is disturbing his equilibrium. So that was the kind of law if you like the visual law and then we got very practical about it we tested a ton of different lenses cameras filters different kind of focal lengths and did the tests with each of the actors to see what worked and didn't work and so on so it all became then very practical but we tried to keep a consistent way of shooting and it was a very short schedule so most of it was handheld or when it was static it was like resting on a sandbag rather than a tripod you know we were trying to just shoot 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 in the number of days that we had and Robbie's a genius at that he's incredibly flexible he has a wonderful eye he's really fast and he's always on the move the storyline that was taking place in Mexico looked and felt so vibrant and colorful as compared yeah. to the scenes in New York particularly inside the apartment which were yes. very muted that's very much in the design of the film so that's work that uh, prepared a, a great deal with Carlos Conti the production designer and we talked about a color palette for each of the stories. So we chose environments in the scenes that were in the story of Mexico um, that were to do with, you know, ochres and reds and, and oranges. The costumes were kept within that color palette. The house was painted. The, all the interiors were painted within that color palette and so on. Greece, on the other hand, was everything was like the color of the Greek flag. It was all blue and white, which Greece is like that, you know, white painted buildings and the blue sea and, and so on. So really, the look of the film is primarily worked through the triangle of the director, the production designer, and the cinematographer, and of course, the costume designer. And I try, we all talk to each other and try and create a kind of unified visual world. Also, when you would transition into a new scene, there was often a very clear gesture or something that would bring you into the next scene. Yes. Was that written into the script? It was all in the script. It was all in the script, but then things change, <laughs> circumstances change, weather changes or the order changes in the cutting room. But I tried to stay with the same principle that it's like his body or some other element or word was always taking us flowing through into the next scene rather than being a hard cut into the next scene. So that we would feel that his mind was like a river flowing this way, that way. And we were following this flow, which indeed could be, you know, he would turn his head to the left in one world and arrive fully at that gesture to the left in the next world, for example, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But a lot of those transitions were in the original script. When you were originally writing that, did you know you would be one of the editors? No, I'm always in the cutting room 99.9% .9 of the time with the editor. 
we work together. It's kind of a collaboration, but my hands are not on it. I'm working through the work of the editor, just as I'm working through the work of the cinematographer and through the work of the production designer. That's the job of the director. You're not necessarily hands-on, but you guide and get people into the vision that you have, and that becomes the basis of the collaboration between you. In this case, the, the edit took longer than it was going to take, and so the first editor I was working with had to leave and at that point I needed to sit more in the editing seat. I still had somebody else actually pushing the buttons for me so to speak but that's why in the end I'm listed amongst the editors because it was a greater degree of editorial responsibility than I sometimes have. So what were the challenges that you ran into in post that were causing the process to take longer than you had originally envisioned? Well, because it was so complex, how to tell this story in a way that people would be able to follow quite simply. And when I tested it, when we'd gone quite a long way down the line and tested it with some audiences, some people followed it with no problem at all, but some people really had a lot of trouble. Is this in the past? Is it in the present? Is this flashbacks? Is this in his mind? You know, what was happening here? What was happening there? And I kind of watched and listened and thought, you know what, I'm going to have another go (laughs) at this. I'm going to see if I can streamline it so that the questions may still be there in people's mind, but they will be, let's put it, an interesting kind of confusion that's resolved by the end. The pieces of the jigsaw all fit together at the end, rather than an alienating kind of confusion. And I mean, I hope I've succeeded in that. And also to make sure that we kept really as close to what was important in the story as, as possible. It's interesting. We're recording this in the week that Westworld is getting ready to debut on HBO. And in an interview, one of the producers said, the audience confusion is a feature, not a bug. (laughs) That's good. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I certainly feel that way. I love watching stuff that I don't understand because I know that it's going to exercise my mind in a way that it's pleasurable for me. That is pleasurable. But I know that not everyone has that pleasurable relationship with ambiguity, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a strange one to navigate. You know, you can't second guess an audience altogether. I like testing a film because I think I want to know, is it reaching people? You know, I'm not doing this for myself. I'm doing this to communicate. So I want to know. But at the same time, I've learned enough from previous films that the responses to a film can change over time. It can be different from one country to another, a film that people didn't get when I first made it. 10, 20 years later, suddenly people get and it gets revived or re-released or people start writing about it. So it can be a medium with a very long tail. But I like the comment from the Westworld people. Absolutely. You also composed for this film. Yes. While you were writing and while you were shooting, is that also when you were thinking of the music or does that come after as well? That was in the cutting room. I didn't know whether this film needed any music at all. You know, it might have been better just silent. I, I, I didn't know. Or whether it should have music that was coming out of the scenes in particular or whatever. But when I was in the cutting room, I found that I kept hearing certain harmonies, melodic lines and certain instrumental sounds. And there's certain musicians I've worked with multiple times. Fred Frith, the guitarist I've worked with, I think it's on six films now, maybe more. And so his sound sound of his guitars become a very important part of the musical identity of my film. But I wanted somehow to create something that brought together 
the electric sound of that guitar with all its mournfulness in the way that Fred plays a kind of melancholic beauty in his guitar sound with a more traditionally classical string quartet sound, although in fact these are individual soloists who are playing the string instruments. Bring those two sounds together. So then I started to experiment with composing along those lines and eventually wrote about five times as much music as it ended up in the final film, wrote and recorded it. But yes, this was not something I had planned to do in the beginning. And at one point when I was putting it together, I thought, should I put this under a pseudonym? People are going to get really annoyed by the fact that I've composed the music as well. And then I thought, oh, for God's sake, you know, do I need to hide? You know, let me just do it anyway. And then let's, let's see how it goes. Yeah. Originally, this had been announced under the title Molly. Yes. When did that change and why? It changed partly feedback from the distributors here in the U.S., Bleecker Street, who said, do you realize Molly is the name of a street drug and that everybody is going to think this film is about drugs? And I kind of resisted that feedback for a while. But also some other feedback I got was that it didn't give enough of a clue, really, about what the film was going to be about. It didn't help people into it. It was a female name and there's a you know a man at the center of it. But in fact, for me, her character, her name, Molly, is important because although we're in his head, she's the one who's holding it together emotionally. And the fact that at the end of the story, he suddenly remembers her name and says it is an incredibly moving part of the story. So there was good reason to call it Molly, but there was also very good reason to not call it Molly. And so finally, I decided on this title that would at least give people a clue that when we're seeing all these other lives of the guy in this head, these are the roads not taken. These are the lives he did not live. I saw an interview with you where once you said ideas are to a penny. Yeah. How do you know when the idea is the one you want to pursue? When I'm still passionate about it after a year or two. (laughs) (laughs) It has to withstand the test of time, you know, because you have to live with something for a long time. So it can't be something you're going to get bored with or, or wish that you'd never taken on in the first place. So it's like that. If I'm still really intrigued by it, I'll keep going. I think one of the things that I've learned from talking with so many filmmakers over the years is that every film you make ends up affecting you in some way. What's your takeaway having completed this project? My takeaway having completed this project is I'm really looking forward to doing a comedy next. (laughs) 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 And I've already written it. So I think it's good to deal with subjects that have sadness or loss. These are part of life. But also, there are other ways of dealing with this subject. I don't know. You know, as a filmmaker, it's a dance, right? From one subject to the next, one way of telling a story to the next. I never want to repeat myself. I'm not interested. I feel I've had that experience. Now I'm moving on to something else, where there's something else new to learn here. And that's that. I mean, it's very much at the beginning of its life, its trajectory in the world, And so I don't yet know how, who's going to welcome it, how it's going to be received. You never do know. I was just talking to a Spanish-speaking journalist, somebody from one of the Latin American countries, and I was very interested to know how it was for him and how it might be received by the Latino, Latina community. And it was very gratifying for me to hear that for him, it was a great relief to hear some Spanish spoken at length, not just like papa, mama or whatever. And the the, the Spanish speaking characters were not like maids or chauffeurs. They were very complicated, rounded human beings having interesting and difficult experiences. But it's very early days. I'm finding out where this film is going to land in people's hearts and minds. Who's going to want it? Who's going to find themselves in it? Who's going to recognize 
recognize it. I don't know yet. But has the process of telling this story changed you in any way? Yeah. I mean, every film, I feel like I go into a universe somehow, albeit a universe of my own making, in that I start with a blank page and then it ends up this kind of world on the film, these people in it and inhabiting it, doing things and speaking in it. You know, I can't blame anyone other than myself for what exists up there on the screen. But I think I became, through making it, even more interested in whether cinema as a medium, movies, are or are not like a doorway into the mind. You know, our minds are so mysterious. If you could put a recording device inside your mind and listen to and watch what's in there, it would be much more complicated than this film. <laughs> you know, the way our thoughts dance from associatively from one thing to the next, the memories, the imagination, the thoughts, the visions, our minds are universes of such complexity. And since the very beginning of making films, I've kind of wondered if we could ever make a film that functioned like the mind in a way. So it's part philosophical, part practical, that question. But that's part of what I was attempting to do with this one. Mm. So you said you kind of move from style to style. You've tested one boundary and you're looking for the next. What drives you from style to style? Well, it's interesting you should ask that because I actually never think of it as a style, really. It's like I think of what form does this story need or idea need in order to be told. So it's a consequence of things much deeper in the idea or in the story. And then I try and find the necessary form for that. So I don't think of it as something I'm adding on to the top of the subject matter, so to speak, which is how you would normally think of a style as a kind of dressing, if you like, but rather as something that is, it must be told this way. And that has ended up with it looking perhaps as if I'm exploring different genre or different ways of telling things rather than having one signature thing, you know, one signature way of making films. But it's for that reason. It's because I'm trying to find out how must this be told? What shape does this film need? So it comes out of that feeling of necessity, really. And when you're developing that, how does a movie tell you how it should be told? I certainly meditate on it, and I think, and I work at it a lot. I try this, I try that. I try to think that the first thought is not always best. You know, what would be another way of doing this? What would be a way of doing that? I look at a lot of stuff. I look at photographs. I look at other movies. I listen to music, and I, I gradually find it. I, I always loved the metaphor of the sculptor looks at a block of stone and sees what form is waiting inside that block to be found. And I experience making a film a little bit like that. It's like I'm finding something. I'm not necessarily inventing it, but I'm finding something that was hidden and there to be found. Thank you so much to our guest today, Sally Potter, who's written and directed The Road's Not Taken. Thank you. And also to our producer for joining us, Jenny Curtis. Thanks, Scott. Thank you so much for calling in, Sally. Well, it's been very nice talking with you. Thank you very much. Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kurt Co. Media and presented in cooperation with the Malibu Film Society. This episode was hosted by Scott Talal, co-hosted by Jenny Curtis, with guest Sally Potter, produced and edited by Jenny Curtis, sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. The score for The Roads Not Taken, featured as the music in this episode, was composed by Sally Potter and provided courtesy of Sony Music Entertainment. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast for more conversations with top industry professionals discussing the entertainment you love.
Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.